in our Bibles this morning to the book of Acts, chapter 23. Sunday morning, we are studying the book of Acts together. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles with Bibles right now, and if you just wave to them, they'll put one in your hand. It'll be marked to our passage this morning, and uh, for your convenience, if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you uh, today. Acts chapter 23, picking things up in verse 11. But the following night, the Lord stood by him, that is Paul, and said, Be of good cheer, Paul. For as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now there was more than 40 who had formed this uh, conspiracy. It helps put our problems in uh, perspective this morning. They came to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you, therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought, Paul that is, down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him, but we are ready to kill him before he comes near. And so when Paul's sister's son, Paul's nephew, heard of their ambush, he went and he entered the barracks and he told Paul, And then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. And so he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. And then the commander took him by the hand, which tells us the nephew was uh, young, and went aside and asked privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they're going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them, for more than 40 of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. And so the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, Tell no one that you have revealed these things to me. And he called for two centurions, saying, Prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night, and provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter in the following manner. Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. I found that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. And when it was told me that the Jews lie and lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. And then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And the next day they left the horsemen to go on with him and return to the barracks. And when they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it and asked what province he was from, and when Paul said that he was, uh, when he understood that Paul was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you. 
when your accusers also have come, and he commanded them to be kept at Herod's praetorium. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the riches that are found in this passage that you want to lift off of the printed page and bring into the reality and the personalness of our relationship with you. We thank you tonight, this morning as for your love. We acknowledge it as we turn toward your word. We thank you for your commitment to us, Lord. We thank you for the truth of your word, the truth about everything that it speaks to. And we are happy to be in the truth. Continue now a work of your Holy Spirit to help us to explore your truth and your reality for our lives this morning. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Outwardly, Paul's trip to uh, Jerusalem, a trip that he was very, very determined to make, it now literally lies in a heap before him. His every attempt that he's made while he was in Jerusalem to build bridges with the Jewish religious establishment there has been completely rebuffed by those same religious leaders. His very presence in the city has provoked two uh, riots that have threatened uh, even the law and order within the city. The financial offering that he spent all of these uh, months and years, I mean, he so lovingly and so painstakingly had collected from, uh, by and large, from the Gentile churches that he had established in the course of his his three missionary journeys, this gift that he was bringing uh, to meet the needs, the financial material needs of the Jewish saints in Jerusalem, bringing it as an expression of love from the Gentile churches in the Roman Empire. When ultimately he comes uh, into the city, the, all of that gets completely swallowed up uh, by the circumstances that met him there. There isn't a single record in all that Luke records here in the book of Acts. Uh, we know that the gift was given to them, but no acknowledgement. There was no ceremony. There was no meeting. There's no expression of gratitude at all from uh, the Christian Jewish religious leaders there within the city concerning the gift. And the trip of Paul there into Jerusalem has resulted in exactly what all of his friends and even prophets were warning him long before he arrived there, that his trip would not be successful as he was hoping that it would be, but that it would ultimately end up in his incarceration, in chains and in uh, tribulation. And as you look at the condition that he's in here, by the time we get to chapter 23, Paul is a man who is desperately in need of a word from God uh, in order to somehow regain perspective related to the circumstances that he finds himself in the middle of, some perspective from God concerning what has just happened within uh, the city, and then some wisdom for what to do now and where to go in the future, and God gave it to him in verse 11. In the course of the, uh, the night following uh, the day of his uh, meeting before the Sanhedrin, the second night after that particular meeting, uh, the Lord met with Paul in the place that he was being imprisoned. It was Jesus himself, and he simply made Paul aware of three things. 
His presence, that is Jesus' presence, His pleasure, and also His plan. Concerning His presence, I mean, you put yourself in Paul's place, and I think any of us that have been uh, through a crushing trial in the course of our Christian lives, which is probably virtually all of us, there's where nothing has turned out exactly as we has, have planned concerning a particular circumstance in our life. And it's the kind of trial that not only breaks our heart, but it breaks our heart and our life in such a way that it completely disorients us. When you're in a trial that leaves you disoriented, you don't know up from down, right from left, you're even having trouble figuring out what's the right move or the wrong move in the situation that I find myself in. Any of us that have been in that kind of place, and Paul finds himself in that kind of place, we all know what it means at that moment in time to have Jesus appear as he did to Paul and to be reminded, as Jesus does here to Paul, of his presence. And those times in our life where we desperately need to realize that God is present in our lives. He isn't sleeping. He isn't unaware of our circumstances. He isn't a hundred trillion miles away somewhere managing uh, the universe, but that He is always in our lives, though often unseen, completely and actively present, not only in our lives, but in our circumstances. And Paul needed to be reminded of the Lord's presence in his life, and so do we, because it's at times like this when we feel like God is very, very far away. Jesus' message to Paul in verse 11 is a simple one. It's a threefold one. First, he declares to Paul, be of good cheer. Literally, he's saying a little bit more than just cheer up, Paul. Uh, It is literally, be of good courage, Uh, take courage. And why would the Lord speak to Paul, even the great apostle Paul, of a need to take courage, except that Paul was discouraged or dejected there at the moment? And then Jesus proceeded to give Paul two reasons for uh, encouraging his courage in the second and third things that, Paul, uh, that the Lord speaks to Paul here in verse 11. He declares to Paul, first of all, you have testified for me in Jerusalem. And what he's saying to Paul here is, Paul, Jerusalem has not been a disaster. I don't know how you're assessing it at the moment, how you see it at the moment, but from my perspective, it isn't a disaster at all. Jesus was pleased with the testimony of Paul there, and Jesus steps in, and it's so necessary at these times in our lives, and he didn't want Paul to even remotely consider his time in Jerusalem to be a failure. How people had responded to Paul, how they had behaved, all of that was a reflection on them. It was no reflection upon Paul. And it's important to realize this, especially when we can be tempted to consider ourselves a failure on the basis of how people have responded to us in sharing the gospel uh, to them or how they respond to our godly decisions and to realize that how people view those things, how uh, they respond to those things, and then how we can begin uh, to come to conclusions about them, all of that can be polar opposite from how 
God sees that very same situation, and thus the necessity to pull aside at these times in our life and to say, God, I know how I feel about this. I know what people think about this, but the one thing I must know is from your throne, how do you see this? That's what I need to know at this moment, and Jesus tells Paul exactly that, and of course these words would have been priceless to him. The Lord went on further to Paul and declared, so you must also bear witness at Rome. And here the, Jesus reveals to Paul his plan. It would have been very, very easy, I think, for Paul to have looked at his life at the moment and concluded that it was all spinning completely out of control that his fate at the moment now lay completely in the hands of the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem or completely in the hands of the Roman Empire and the whole uh, judicial structure that was in place there in, in Jerusalem, but it wasn't. Paul's life was not under the control of those things, and neither uh, is ours. Jesus promised Paul here, very important to notice, that as surely as Paul had borne witness to Jesus in Jerusalem, that he would likewise bear witness to Jesus in Rome. In other words, Paul, from here I send you to Rome. And when you get to Rome, and one day you stand before the Roman emperor, the Caesar, and you, as you are ready to speak to him, do not use that opportunity to plea your innocence concerning the charges that these Jews have brought against you, but use that opportunity to do what you did here in Jerusalem as an opportunity to testify to him of me. Now, in order to understand uh, the depth of what's happening here in verse 11, which will be the main focus of what we look at this morning, it is important to at least overview a little bit the remainder of the passage that we've uh, looked at this morning. And we see the plotters and the plot as they're uh, attempting to arrange for and, uh, Paul's death in order to, they want to kill him, these 40 uh, religious Jews. They make a vow to God that they're not going to eat or drink until they do so. And when it talks about them making an oath to God that they would do so, the idea was that we, it wasn't that we swear or we promise to do this. The idea is God, they believe they're doing this on God's behalf. God, if we fail to kill Paul, then make our names a curse. Uh, bring your judgment down upon us. And we will not eat and we will not drink until Paul is uh, dead. And, and then as we look at the passage, and we know as we read through it that they uh, failed, you might wonder, did they all die of dehydration and die of, of hunger? No, you don't understand the Jews if you, uh, if you think that. The uh, religious Jews had uh, they had formalized in the Jewish, what would become the Jewish Mishnah ultimately, the Jewish rabbis 
had devised a means for breaking virtually any vow that you would make to God. And uh, they had one uh, where you could break a vow by reason of constraint. In other words, if you make the vow and then the the circumstances change in such a way that you can no longer keep the vow, uh, then then you were allowed to be freed from the vow. So Paul being delivered from Jerusalem to Caesarea would have uh, uh, constituted uh, the, you know, the grounds for violating the vow. Uh, not to worry for these guys. They had a big breakfast the very next morning. Uh, the plan is an interesting one here because they, they collaborate with the Jewish Sanhedrin. And we remember this is the 71 most powerful Jewish men in, in all of uh, Judaism. And they approach the Jewish Sanhedrin and they say, we want you to become a part of our plan. We want you to make a a request of the Roman commander, Lysias, that you you want to uh, rehear Paul's situation one more time so that Lysias then will bring him before the Jewish council. And while they are working him through the streets of Jerusalem, at some point we will ambush them and we will kill Paul. And so they pull the Jewish Sanhedrin into all of this. It shows you how deeply corrupted uh, Judaism was at that time that this group of Jewish religious leaders would join these uh, zealots in uh, arranging for the assassination of Paul, which was contrary to anything that you find in the Bible anywhere and certainly contrary to uh, the law of, of Moses. It is important to realize in all fairness to the Pharisees that made up a good portion of the Sanhedrin, it appears that they were left out of the loop. It talks about coming to the chief priests and the high priests. These were all positions that were held by the Sadducees, the more liberal part of the body, and uh, these are the ones. The Pharisees were probably not informed because they wouldn't have been inv- would not have involved themselves in such an action against a former Pharisee that they knew Paul uh, to be. The plot ends up being exposed, as we read there in verses 16 through 22. Somehow Paul's nephew becomes aware as he's kind of making the rounds in Jerusalem, becomes aware of the fact that this plot against uh, his uncle's life is uh, circulating, that this thing is in full uh, swing. It's the only mention of Paul's family in the entire Bible here, that he has a sister and that he has uh, a nephew. The nephew uh, proceeds then to where Paul is being held prisoner. He informs him of the plan. Paul then instructed one of the centurions to take his nephew to Lysias to let him know about this assassination uh, plot that was uh, ready to be hatched. And then upon hearing uh, the plot from uh, the young boy, uh, the Lysias uh, commands uh, the nephew to keep all of this completely uh, confidential, and then he's set to work immediately to get Paul out of Jerusalem, not only for his own safety, but also for the peace and quiet of the city of, uh, of Jerusalem. Again, in the Roman Empire, there was probably no more volatile portion of it than Israel. 
and uh, it was so easy to in some way provoke some kind of a religious uprising and, and a rebellion. They were very careful in how uh, with any even remote threat of violence in overseeing the city. Now all of this with this nephew overhearing the plot and then coming now uh, to Paul and all of this then being made known uh, to Lysias. It's a beautiful example of the providence of God at work surrounding Paul's uh, life. And, the provident, and it reminds us of the providence of God that is at work concerning our lives as well and at work uh, also uh, within uh, the affairs of the world. Not only uh, is it interesting to note that did God make the plot known, but he is also going to further use this plot uh, to move Paul toward Rome, even as he had just promised Paul. I think that so often as we look at the circumstances and the events in life, and we can be prone to think of them even related to our own lives as Christians as just kind of being happenstance. They're a, co a coincidence. I even hear Christians speak about luck or blind luck, forgetting that God's providence is at work in each of our lives in orchestrating the events of our life so as to move us forward in His will and His plan for each of our lives. The providence of God and what happens here, we might even kind of uh, call it a soft miracle, but it is still uh, completely a miracle. Sometimes we think that miracles uh, are the only thing that are miracles or something that is so uh, starkly, you know, beyond kind of our, uh, the physical realm and the laws of nature and so forth, and God comes in and He supersedes those laws and He does a, a, a miracle. And, and, but this is every bit as much a, a miracle as any of those other miracles. God steps into a situation, we don't see it, but He is completely orchestrating the situation and the circumstances of our life in order to accomplish His will through our lives. And so often we don't recognize the miracle, the perfect uh, orchestration of the circumstances, all of that coming together, and we don't recognize the miraculousness of the event until much later, and then we begin to think and say, wow, isn't it amazing how all of those things lined up so perfectly that we would then end up here or we would end up there. And it is all God's providence at work in our lives where He lines up perfectly the people, the place, the timing, and the circumstances. This is the providence of God. Every time God keeps a promise in His Word to us, when our current circumstances are in violation of the fulfillment of that providence, uh, or of that promise. He exercises providence in order to do it. He works whatever has to be done behind the scenes in the circumstances to then accomplish the keeping of that prov uh, promise. Providence and the providence of God is going on so uh, constantly in our lives. Sometimes people say, I wish I could see a miracle. I wish there were miracles today or more miracles today uh, than, you know, there were in the book of Acts and so forth. If we only knew our lives, each of our lives is just a constant 
unending miracle of God in Him being faithful to His promises in the face of our circumstances. And not that He does it in one of our lives or ten of our lives in this room, but that He does it in each one of our lives and in the lives of every Christian within the entire world. Now, these miracles, the miraculous is happening all of the time in our lives. The Christian life is a miraculous life. One definition of providence, the providence of God, is that God not only upholds the existence and natural order of the universe, but that He also intervenes in that natural order and in man's history as well. The way that it works best for me, and we're talking about great mystery here. I mean, <laughs> these are things that are way beyond anything that we can formulate uh, in our minds. But I define it as God ruling over all and overruling all for His purposes in order to move human history toward His God-appointed end, whether it is on a national level or a worldwide level or on an individual level in each and every one of our uh, lives. And one of the reasons that we don't recognize His providence's work is that while it is supernatural, it appears to be completely natural. And we see these things continually in the Bible. We think of the book of Esther when Ahasuerus, who was the uh, king at the time and married to Esther, and one night he can't sleep, and there he is, he's lying and tossing and turning in bed, and so what is he going to do? Is he going to count sheep? No, he does something that's even more boring than that. He gets up and he calls for one of his attendants to go uh, get the books that would be like the essential, uh, essentially like our national record. Go bring me the books from, you know, 1967 that describes all of the actions and laws that were passed by the House of Representatives in the Senate and bring that and read that to me. Surely that will put me to sleep immediately." And so the books are brought, and they begin to read, and he reads coincidentally, providentially. Uh, the guy begins to read about how it is that Esther's uncle, Mordecai, had revealed the plot against Ahasuerus, uh, against his life. And then Ahasuerus asked, was he ever rewarded for this? And he was informed, no, and then set all of that, the sleeplessness of a single man, who then calls for certain books to be brought to him. And then as the whole entire thing plays out, as you're perhaps familiar with the book of Esther, it ends up uh, 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 unfolding in a way in which the, uh, the uh, very existence of the Jewish people is saved from being utterly wiped out in that age. I think about Joseph in the same uh, vein. Here he is as a young man. He's given promises that one day his mother and his father and his brothers, that one day they're going to bow down before him. He is going to exercise authority over them. And then comes this long season in his life, years, in which it just looks like confusion. It looks like nothing is happening that his life is being 
completely wasted. And yet God is working in Joseph in such a way to not only one day put him in a place where he is the second most powerful man in the Middle Eastern world at that time, second only to Pharaoh, but that he now has the character built into his life to be successful in that position that God is going to put him in. And then God uses all of those events, and one day as he reveals the meaning of two dreams to Nebuchadnezzar, or to Pharaoh rather, he then rises up into that position and becomes the savior of uh, the Jewish uh, people. All of it, God working, his providence, the promise given over here, and then him supernaturally working the circumstances until one day all of it's fulfilled. We think about the same thing in terms of King David called by God, anointed by God to become the next king of Israel after Saul. Twenty years go by in his life before he uh, 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 ultimately takes that uh, position as fully as the king uh, over Israel, and yet the promises are given to him. And then God works providentially in David's life through every kind of circumstance uh, that could rise up in defiance of God's promise until ultimately he becomes the second king of Israel. And what was true of each of them, the Bible teaches, is also true of each of us as Christians here this morning. An important verse, if you take notes, is Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. Paul himself wrote in this vein, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, speaking of Jesus, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, Lysias gets this report and he recognizes immediately the danger of the situation and the danger that it produced uh, for the city itself, that the uh, violence, the heart of violence toward the Apostle Paul, it is not ebbing in Jerusalem, even with his arrest, but that it is growing. And so he's determined now to transport Paul out of the city under the cover of darkness. That's why they leave at 9 o'clock at night, so the Jews will not know that Paul is being uh, secreted out of uh, Jerusalem so that Paul could then be taken to Caesarea before the Roman governor who was over the entire region, a man by the name of Felix. The Roman escort, the military escort, is described in verses 23 to 24. It ends up totaling 470 men. I mean, a king doesn't get this kind of an escort from Jerusalem to Caesarea, and yet this is all provided for with Paul. And then the letter that was sent to Felix by Lysias as it's described there in uh, verses 25 through 30. Uh, more or less true. He certainly writes a letter showing himself in the most positive light, but most of us do the same thing when we uh, kind of recount the activities. And so it's a generally accurate uh, account, and, uh, and it's interesting that it's the only Gentile uh, only letter written by a Gentile that is recorded in the entire uh, New Testament. I'm talking about as a part of the record. Luke wrote, uh, Acts and Luke, but recorded within the Scriptures themselves. 
And the reason it's probably recorded for us here is because of uh, uh, his Lysias' confession uh, there in verse 29 that he had found Paul not worthy not only of anything concerning his death but even his imprisonment. And Lysias will be the first of many Roman uh, uh, judges and officials who will oversee Paul's trials and come to uh, the same conclusion. The journey to Caesarea is recorded there in verses 31 to 35. It's a 60-mile journey that takes uh, is made over the course of two days. The letter is delivered to Felix. Felix asks Paul where in the world he is from because he's trying to understand, does this man and his situation fall under my jurisdiction? When Paul informs him that he's from Cilicia, Felix realizes that was his jurisdiction, and he agrees to hear the case, and he will hold Paul incarcerated until his accusers come to Jerusalem, and a formal and fair trial can be conducted, and that occurs in the next chapter. Now, what I want to do as we close this morning is to circle back to verse 11 for closing application. And I want to address verse 11 from the angle of what I would call uh, uh, the little picture and the big picture. Allow me to give you just a a cross-section of the next five years of the Apostle Paul's life. Here he is. He's escorted out of Jerusalem to Caesarea. He will never see Jerusalem again. It is almost impossible for us to realize what that meant to the Apostle Paul. He is a Jew. He was trained under Gamaliel in that city. He was a Pharisee there. Jerusalem was the capital of Judaism, the capital of Israel. He will never see the city again with his own eyes for the rest of his life. I've had the privilege of going to uh, Jerusalem a number of times in my lifetime. And always when we as a group are making our way on the bus to the plane to now uh, leave Israel at the end of the trip, and it's always a very early morning ride, and we depart the city as it's in darkness, it's only lit by the street lights, and always as we leave it, I think to my, I'm already working in my heart, is there some way that I can come back to this amazing place one more time? And I'm just a Gentile from Modesto. I'm not the Apostle Paul. And here he has the realization he'll never see it again. He's going to end up spending two full years languishing in that prison there in Caesarea while the Roman commander, Felix, just dithers and uh, fritters away all of the time, hoping that someone will come and value Paul enough uh, to offer Felix a bribe of a substantial enough amount of money uh, that, Paul, that, Lysias, I mean, that, that Felix would then uh, feel uh, was sufficient to then release uh, Paul. Paul finally then appeals his case uh, to Caesar, but the preceding, uh, the, the, uh, the, the subsequent rather, uh, journey from Caesarea to Rome and all of the processes that were involved in it, the journey itself would take another year. And upon Paul coming to Rome, 
He would remain incarcerated there in the city of Rome for two years before he would ever stand before uh, Caesar. And in the midst of all of this, the course of all of this, there would be the death threats, the legal hearings, the slander, the accusations made against him, then the waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for years and years for some resolution to the injustice of all of it that was going on in his life. There would be a boat ride to Rome that would encounter a 14-day storm that was so great that they never saw the light of the sun, not one time in 14 days. And everyone on board was so sick that no one could eat a bite of food for the 14 uh, days. And ultimately, that storm would result in shipwreck concerning the ship and after which the Apostle Paul, as he and the 275 other men make their way to the shore and are desperately trying to put a bonfire together in order to keep from freezing to death in the middle of winter, uh, soaked to the bone from uh, the waters of the Mediterranean, chilled, and as Paul is throwing sticks upon uh, this fire, there is a viper that is bound up in the sticks, comes to life with the heat of the fire, and jumps out and bites the Apostle Paul on the hand, after which he shakes it off into the fire. You think, talk about being a snake bit, not just in the single event, but to feel that way about your entire life. And how do you manage all of that if you are Paul? It's one thing to read it on the pages of Scripture and say, yes, he went through it, and yes, that was a part of his history, and so forth. But to just stop and ask, how do you maintain perspective in the midst of the micro of all of that, the daily of it, the nitty-gritty of it? How in the world did Paul manage it? And he managed it by keeping his eyes on the bigger picture. And what was the bigger picture for Paul? God's promise to Paul that he would bear witness to him at Rome. And for Paul, in the course of all of the ups and downs and highs and lows of all of this, in the midst of each of those circumstances, to ask himself, is this moving me closer to bearing witness to Jesus in Rome. And as hard as all of those circumstances were, the simple answer to the big picture question was yes. Yes, it is. That God's providence was clearly being evidenced in each one of these circumstances. When someone is in the middle of a crisis, and they go to see a counselor, the counselor will very often ask the person, how do you think you will view all of this a year from now? How do you think you'll view all of this five years from now? And the counselor is endeavoring to do two very important things in the life of the person that they are counseling by posing uh, that question. The first thing that they're doing is they're introducing hope. They're planting the seed in the mind of a person that can't, has lost even the hope of surviving another day or another week in their life 
planting the hope of the idea that someone else may believe for me if I can't believe it for myself, that there might be a year from now in my life, that there might be a five years from now in my life, and introducing here uh, that hope. But second, they're trying to help the person to gain a proper perspective, a healthy perspective, by introducing a longer window of time into the circumstance, by getting them to see their current crisis, the little picture of life, in the light of the big picture. And again, the way that Paul, for Paul to properly process all of those events that could have been so disorienting for him on the small picture level, on the micro level, was for him to put them up against the big picture, to ask at each step in the course of things, is this bringing me closer to Rome and being a witness there as God has promised? And every step did, and every step would accomplish that in his life. If he had merely looked at those events randomly, if he had only kept his eyes upon the small picture, the result would have been he would have lost perspective, he would have been confused, he would have become frustrated with God, he could even become angry with God. God, why are you allowing all of these things to happen to me? But as he would view these same circumstances in the light of the big picture of going to Rome, what God had promised in his word, he not only maintained perspective in all of it, but he also experienced peace and joy and hope in the midst of it as well. The promise of verse 11 was the north star, so to speak, that God gave Paul by which to successfully interpret and to navigate the next five years of his life, and to do so by interpreting the little picture of the daily of life in the light of the big picture of God's providence, to recognize God's providence at work in all of it. And it's interesting to me that it was through the Apostle Paul that God Himself has also provided each of us as Christians with a big-picture verse, with a North Star verse and promise as well. And the big-picture verse that will help us process and interpret the little picture of the daily and the weekly of life in the light of the reality of the overarching providence of God at work in our lives as well, is Romans chapter 8, verse 28. I think they'll put it on the screen and we can read it together without having to turn to it. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. Let's leave that up there for a couple of minutes. One of the greatest verses on the providence of God in all of the Bible, 
and that encourages us in the fact that as we live our lives out in the daily, nitty-gritty, little picture of life and all of its events, all of the trials, all of the imprisonments, all of the false accusations, all of the storms, all of the shipwrecks, all of the snake bites, that above all of it, God is personally and actively in each one of our lives as Christians working everything together for good. And you notice the promise is not that all things are good. They're not. Not all things are good in life. And that's not what God is saying, is that all things are good because we're Christians. They're not. It doesn't say that God will only allow good things in my life. If I believe that about God, it is in defiance of what the entire Scriptures teach, and I will find myself frustrated with God, not because He has changed His Word on me or He's being unfaithful to me, but because I am completely misunderstanding His promises, and I'm bringing something, uh, an expectation to my Christian life that God never tells us to have. It doesn't say that God will only allow good things in my life. That's not what He did with Paul, and that's not what He does with our lives as well. The promise is that God will work everything together for good. That is, that He will rule over all, and He will overrule all of the circumstances in our life and make them accomplish His purposes for our lives. Well, Paul is going to Rome, and we can flip off of that verse now. Paul had, had going to Rome as his means of measuring all of this in his life But what's the means by which we measure and recognize the providence of God in our lives as Christians today to recognize His providential hand at work? And we have to ask ourselves a different set of questions than, is this drawing me closer to Rome? The questions that we ask as Christians is this. Is this circumstance in my life working to conform me into the image of Christ in a way that perhaps nothing else would? I do think it's important to realize that as we quote uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 28, about God working all things together for good in our lives, that the very next verse, chapter 29, defines what good is. We think of good as a a better car and a better home and a what in our materialistic society. But God doesn't view good that way. He defines His working all things together for good in our lives and that it works to conform us into the image of His Son. And it works us into the greatest life a person can live, this side of glory. Another question that's important for us to ask in order to recognize God's providential hand in our lives is to ask of the circumstances, are these circumstances producing a godly character in my life? Another question is, am I learning things about God, about His wisdom, about His power, about His love in this circumstance that I probably, knowing myself, could not learn 
any other way? Or another question is, is this trial or this situation preparing me for an abundant entrance into heaven one day? Well, here I am wanting to live safely, uh, live in a hole, uh, not to take any kind of risks, just live out my three score and ten in the world and then get out as unscathed as I can and into the glory of heaven. But then to look at how God orchestrates things within our lives and says, no, I want a, a better entry into heaven than that for you, and I will use circumstances in such a way that it will make you make choices concerning me and produce a depth of relationship between you and me that will not only bless you in the relationship, but that it will one day involve you entering into heaven and hearing that well done from Jesus himself. And if I answer yes to these questions, then I am properly recognizing the providence of God at work in my own life. And it is as I look at life and the little picture of my life in the light of those kind of questions that I then begin to recognize and process the nitty-gritty and the daily of life in the light of the overarching providence of God, the big picture of what God is doing in my life. You see, God is in control of our lives. And he does make everything in our lives to serve his purposes uh, in our lives and for our lives. And he does it in us as surely as he did it with the Apostle Paul. That is never in question. That is happening, that will happen in each of our lives. The thing that is in question, the only thing that's in play in all of this is whether I will stop and recognize it if I will stop in the daily of life and in the, in the complexity and hardship of even the circumstances individually as they occur in my life, and then to interpret the little picture of the daily and the weekly in life and the light of the big picture of His providence, and to realize, no, I get it. I don't like being here. I don't like what I'm going through. I don't like the difficulty of the circumstances but he is making me into a man of God or a woman of God that I would never otherwise become or choose to become on my own. No, I see his fingerprints very clearly in the circumstances that I'm in. And like Paul this morning, perhaps a number of us, are the circumstances of your life a mess? But you look at them, and they're conforming you into the image of Christ. They're producing godly character in your life. You recognize that spiritually you're learning things you would never learn any other way, that it's refining your life. It's preparing you for an abundant entrance into heaven. Your grip on the earth is becoming lighter, and your desire for heaven is becoming greater. And if you recognize those things are happening in your life, though your life seems to be swirling completely out of control, then lift your eyes off of the immediate of the little picture of your life and recognize the deep and the personal and the overarching work of the providence of God at work in your life. 
and then rejoice in the fact that he is working all of it together for good. And you'll see. We could study the remainder of the book of Acts, chapters 23 to 28, and it's very, very easy to study them. It happens all of the time. It's just a series of kind of these random events that happened in Paul's life. The journey to Caesarea, the long time uh, before the trial and ultimately, you know, can, wanting to stand before uh, uh, Caesar in Rome, the trip to Rome and, uh, and all of the things involved with the shipwreck and all of it. And we just look at it as just this series of events and what can we learn from each of these individual events that look so random and, and disconnected. But if that's how I see chapters 23 through 28 of the book of Acts, I am missing the single great lesson of the close of the book. It's not written to speak to us supremely of all of those events, but to reveal to us the overarching providence of God that was at work in Paul's life. God made the promise, and God kept the promise. And all of this, of course, is in the Bible for us in order that it's not merely a record of the fact that God did this in Paul's life, but that he also does it in our life individually here as Christians this morning. And so if you look at your life this morning, and it looks as you came in here this morning as just this bunch of random, disconnected, out-of-control events with the job and the marriage and the family and the neighborhood and the all. And then to come in under the weight and the beauty of God's Word and the work of His Holy Spirit and to realize that, no, it isn't. I'm not, I'm not at the mercy of the events of life. And to realize that, that you can be at peace, peace that God is above all of it, and He is actively working it together for good, and that one day you'll see just how good it is. But in the meantime, for our heads to be lifted off of the little picture of our life to the big picture of God's providence, at work in our lives to maintain perspective in the craziness and the nitty-gritty of the daily of our lives. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, when we talk about your providence, and it just so often I think and the more that time goes on as we as, as people weaken in the depth of the knowledge of your word, that it just seems like it's a theological term, that there's nothing personal about it. It's just some kind of a distant term that describes a distant act of a distant God. But then to see as it is here this morning in this passage, how intimate, how personal it is, how beautiful, how perfect it is. This morning, Lord, we acknowledge your providence in the keeping of every promise that you have made to us in the course of our lives thus far and the miracle that each one of those events was, Lord. 
and that it is in our lives today. And we pray that you would use this time in the Scriptures this morning to lift the heads of any today who have come in completely tossed in a sea, Lord, of their circumstances and wondering, is anyone in control of this at all? And just hoping that there's an end to it and not even, Lord, hoping big enough to believe that all of it could be worked together for good. And then to be reminded here today through your word that they'll not only survive it, but that you will overwhelm all of it for your purposes within their life. And you will work it all together for their good. And Lord, we pray that as we continue our pilgrimage, the remainder of it, however long it is before your return, Jesus, or however long it is for each of our lives, that you would remind us of this great lesson from your word to help us maintain perspective in the midst of navigating your plan for each of our lives. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.